Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. 100 years ago, Ireland was in the midst of a revolutionary war for independence from Britain. The Irish struggle for freedom is full of lessons for Marxists today. The tactics of divide and rule of the ruling class, the betrayals of nationalist leaders, the role of individual terrorism, the role of religion, and above all, the role of the working class in national liberation struggles. In this episode, Ben Curry, editor of Socialist Appeal, discusses the Irish struggle for freedom. Um, yeah, so the topic of uh, today's discussion, uh, this morning's discussion, is the struggle for Irish freedom. And the first question I think you might ask is, what do we mean by the struggle for Irish freedom? Do we mean the struggle for Irish national liberation, uh, the struggle for independence from Britain? <clears throat> or are we talking about the, uh, the, the class struggle, the struggle against class exploitation and against capitalism in Ireland? Well, as I hope to go on to explain, uh, despite appearances, these are historically not two separate struggles really in Ireland. They are part of one and the same struggle. And in fact, failure to recognise this fact has been the cause of many of the disasters in Ireland's revolutionary history. Now, Ireland, as I'm sure you're aware, is uh, Britain's oldest colony. And as the great Irish Marxist James Connolly explained, uh, the national conquest of Ireland by Britain was not just the imposition of English political rule. It was also the imposition of a new set of property relations. It was the imposition of feudal and capitalist property relations on Ireland. And prior to the English conquest, you had remnants of an ancient uh, tribal constitution and uh, primitive communism existing until quite late in the historical record in Ireland. The connection with England was by no means a, uh, a source of progress for Ireland at all. In fact, in the, in the last analysis, uh, if we're to seek an explanation for the persistence of the national question in Ireland, it comes down to the fact that the connection with England was always a source of backwardness for Ireland. And this becomes particularly clear with the rise of capitalism in Britain. The same process which led to advance and development in Britain actually held back uh, Ireland and entrenched underdevelopment. In the 19th century, uh, Ireland was effectively reduced to the status of an agricultural colony uh, feeding Britain's growing manufacturing towns. And the Irish peasant had basically two choices before them, either to hold on to the land where they were bled dry by the absentee English landlord, or to emigrate and to swell the ranks of the proletariat in Britain or the United States or elsewhere. And um, you, could, you could say that the Irish national identity itself was forged over the course of centuries of struggle against British imperialism. And at the same time, the British Empire pioneered in those centuries the same methods that they would apply across the empire in Ireland. The, the method of divide and rule, particularly sect sectarian division between Protestants and Catholics, was uh, fermented by British imperialism over the course of centuries. And this was precisely to prevent the Irish peasants and workers from achieving class unity, basically. And in fact, it was in direct response to uh, the great uh, uprising of 1798 of the United Irishmen that the authorities in Ireland and the landlords uh, helped to organise the counter-revolutionary Protestant organisation known as the Orange Order. And in Belfast, which is a city in the north which was far more industrialised than the rest of, uh, of, of Ireland, the Orange Order was used to try and cut across 
the class divisions between Protestant workers and Protestant bosses and to bring them together into one organisation. And the main means by which this was done, particularly in Belfast, was, was by giving the Protestant workers the pick of the, uh, of the best skilled jobs that existed in the shipyards and in the other industries to create the illusion of a unity of interest between Protestant bosses and Protestant workers. But even though the, uh, the standard of living of Protestant workers as bare averages tended to be on average higher than those of Catholic workers in the north of Ireland. Both Protestant and Catholic workers in Ireland uh, have tended to have uh, in the north and continue to this day to tend to have uh, worse conditions than British workers. Incomes are on average higher in Britain. Yeah, as I say, this is as true today as, as, as ever. And uh, it's a direct legacy of the poisoners divisions introduced into the working class by British imperialism. Now, the revolutionary struggle in Ireland that has often taken the form of a revolutionary struggle against British imperialism for self-determination has never been purely uh, uh, isolated. Uh, it's always been connected to the world revolution and world events, right? I mentioned the movement of the United Irishmen in 1798. It was directly inspired by the French Revolution. In 1848, you had revolutions across Europe and uh, revolutionary movements uh, taking place in Ireland as well. The Fenian Rising of the 1860s was directly connected to the revolutionary events of the American Civil War. And in the period I want to focus on in this lead-off between 1918 and 1922, Ireland was, of Ireland was in the, 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 the throes of a revolutionary war for independence. At the same time as, uh, as Europe was being swept by a wave of proletarian revolutions in the wake of the Russian Revolution. And as I hope to go on to show, the, in content, despite having the outward appearance of a, a national war for liberation, the Irish War of Independence was in content a proletarian revolution as well. Now this year marks an important uh, centenary of an important turning point in that revolutionary war of independence. Because this, de this December is uh, exactly 100 years since the signing of the Anglo-Irish uh, Treaty in December 1921. Now this uh, treaty was a uh, reactionary agreement between uh, the British imperialists and a section of the Irish Republican Army, which was the IRA leading the, uh, the national liberation struggle at that time. Now that treaty brought the, uh, the War of Independence to an end um, on the basis of carving Ireland into two. You had the formation in the north of a state known as Northern Ireland, and a state in the south known as the Irish Free State. You, you still see both of these entities on a map today, and uh, both were uh, reactionary sectarian states, which, which, which both continued to be dominated by British imperialism. Now, this treaty strengthened reactionary divisions in the working class, and it's left a poisonous legacy right down to this day in an unsolved national question. And it has created uh, problems and contradictions that are beyond the control of British imperialism and are now actually causing a headache and a problem for British imperialism too. Brexit is bringing all of this to the very fore of our attention. And in the context of a growing conflict between British, uh, the, the, the British and uh, the European Union, you're seeing the rise of Protestant sectarianism and loyalist groups like a Frankenstein's monster that has got out of the control of British imperialism that force brought them into existence. Yeah, and to understand the very complex situation that is developing today, um, we have to look back at those events of a century ago, of a proletarian revolution betrayed and a proletarian revolution which ended in counter-revolution. It's, it's an event which is full of lessons for revolutionaries today. Now, the, um, the early 20th century saw storm clouds beginning to gather over Ireland. At the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the, the Scottish-Irish Marxist James Connolly arrived in Ireland and he undertook a very important analysis of the situation in Ireland up until that point. Um, Connolly uh, analysed Irish history and he came to a very radical conclusion. He came to understand that the Irish bourgeoisie was always extremely weak and had always depended upon British imperialism. The, 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 the Irish bourgeois depended upon 
the, the, the markets of the British Empire. They stored their capital in British banks. <clears throat> and Connolly understood that this connection with British imperialism meant that the Irish bourgeoisie could never be counted upon to carry out a serious struggle against British imperialism. Connolly drew the conclusion that it was for this reason that the Irish national struggle had always ended up in betrayal or disaster up until this point, the, at the start of the 20th century. It came down to a question of the failure of the middle class leadership which had always been at the head of the national movement in Ireland. And Connolly drew a very bold conclusion from this and that was that the working class alone could be depended to go all the way in the struggle for freedom in Ireland, in the struggle for national self-determination and in the struggle for a republic. Connolly understood if the working class were to lead the other oppressed layers of the Irish nation to uh, independence and the formation of a republic, they wouldn't stop at the formation of a capitalist republic. The Irish workers would begin the socialist revolution in Ireland and that would form part of the chain of worldwide socialist revolutions. James Connolly was an internationalist and Connolly therefore raised the slogan of the need for a workers republic. And what is remarkable about these conclusions that Connolly drew is that they were exactly the same conclusions fundamentally that Leon Trotsky drew when analysing the Russian revolution in 1905. And Trotsky's uh, theory that has come to be known as the theory of the permanent revolution was that the the Russian workers were the only class in Russian society that could be depended upon to fight consistently against autocracy and for the national democratic uh, tasks of the Russian Revolution. But if the working class of Russia were to lead a successful struggle against the autocracy, they would begin the socialist revolution. And therefore, the national democratic tasks and the socialist tasks of the Russian Revolution were intertwined. Now, in the early 20th century, you saw simultaneously rising class struggle in Ireland and also rising national struggles. Workers were beginning to organise themselves in the class struggle trade union, the uh, Transport Workers Union, under the leadership of the revolutionary trade unionist Jim Larkin. And in the midst of this rising class struggle, the British ruling class had been moving in the direction of reform over the national question, actually. In 1912, the Liberal government at the time put before the British Parliament the question of a home a Home Rule Act for Ireland. Yeah, it wasn't the same thing as full independence. It would have given Ireland its own parliament, uh, but it would have been a fairly toothless affair. It was quite a mild reform in content, actually. However, the, the discussion of this act provoked a furious reaction from the dominant wing of the British bourgeoisie, led by the Tory party. In an age of imperialism, they understood that if you began unravelling the British Empire at one corner, this could have effects in other parts of the empire, could have demands for home rule and even independence elsewhere. And they were also afraid that home rule for Ireland could embolden those that were demanding full independence in Ireland. And at the extreme left wing of those that were demanding independence were the proletarian elements, the socialist republicans and the Marxists, people like James Connolly. And the British ruling class were always afraid that these people would take the lead of the national movement and supplant the middle class layers that were moderating the movement and keeping it within safe channels for the time being. And there's an important lesson uh, for, for us in how the British ruling class responded to this piece of legislation that they didn't like. The ruling class always tell us that you have to stay within the law and within constitutional limits, but the Tories were not prepared to stay within the law when their interests were threatened. The Tory politician Edward Carson went over to Ulster in the north of Ireland, supported by the Tory party leader, and he began organising the most backward lumpen elements of the, of the Belfast uh, uh, society 
into a reactionary militia known as the Ulster Volunteers. Lenin likened this organization to the Black Hundreds, the uh, the pogromist anti-Semitic organization that I think the other comrades are probably discussing in the other section, <laughs> in the other session right now. And when Lloyd George, the Liberal Prime Minister, um, asked the, uh, the, the, the troops stationed at the Curragh to be ready to move to the north in this situation, he was met by the mass resignation of all of the senior officers of the, uh, the, the British regiment. So this was effectively a ruling class mutiny. <laughs> and the Liberals bowed down, as they always do. And at the same time that this crisis was unfolding, um, Dublin exploded into class war. The Dublin workers had been organising in the class struggle transport union under the leadership of Larkin. And the capitalists of Dublin were determined to, trash, uh, to, 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 to crush this union by locking out thousands and tens of thousands of Dublin's workers and demanding that they resign their membership of the union. Dublin at this time was the city with the, 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 the worst, most despicable slums in the whole of Europe. And the workers fought back fiercely. Where they weren't locked out, they came out on strike. And the bosses were determined to, 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 to uh, starve the workers and their families uh, to break them. And this polarised uh, Dublin. On the one side, you had the bosses, the police... Um, armed scabs that were brought over from England to beat up the workers, and also very significantly the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, which in every revolutionary crisis in Irish history has come down openly on the side of counter-revolution. And on the other side, you had the workers, their trade union, and also very significantly a layer of the most revolutionary and honest uh, Democrats of the Republican movement. People like Patrick Pierce came over to the side of the workers. And in, in, in the course of the Dublin lockout, under the leadership of James Connolly, a Marxist, the Transport Union began organising a very important organisation in Irish history. This was the Irish Citizens Army. It was a, an, an armed militia of the workers to defend themselves against the scabs. It was effectively the first Red Guard formed anywhere in Europe outside of Russia up until this time. Now, the Dublin in lockout it went down to a, a messy draw the bosses didn't succeed in crushing the union but the workers were exhausted by this struggle as you can imagine and the winter of 1913-1914 was a winter of of cold hunger and pain and suffering for thousands of families in Dublin working class families but before the workers could even draw breath um, the whole of Europe was plunged into a new crisis. I'm, of course, talking about the outbreak of the First World War in August 1914. And this outbreak of war led to millions of workers being conscripted into the armies of Europe. And they were plunged into a fratricidal conflict where they were killing each other for the profits of their bosses. And as you know, the, uh, the, the Social Democratic Workers' Party's leaders, for the most part, betrayed the working class and supported their capitalist class in this fratricidal war. And only a few noble exceptions stood out and kept the, the banner of proletarian internationalism uh, held high. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht in Germany, uh, Lenin and Trotsky, uh, then in exile, but obviously from Russia, and James Connolly in Ireland, among uh, a small number of others. And in Ireland, the middle-class nationalist leaders, actually, of the Irish Parliamentary Party also supported the British war effort. This confirmed everything that James Connolly had said, that these, these people, when uh, crisis came, they, 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 they came to the assistance of British imperialism, these so-called nationalist leaders. And... Um, they thought that by proving themselves sufficiently slavish towards the British Empire, they would be granted reforms on the back of this war. Now, like, um, like Lenin, Connolly understood that it wasn't enough to oppose the war on moral or pacifist grounds. He understood that it was necessary to turn the war into a class war, into a revolution against the very warlords and capitalists that had plunged Europe into this horror. And uh, Connolly saw a, a possible rising in Ireland 
as a potential for a spark for revolution across Europe, um, which would be a socialist revolution that could bring down capitalism in Europe. I say these things because Connolly has often been reduced to little more than a national liberation hero. He was an internationalist, a Marxist, and uh, we claim him as Marxist as part of our tradition. We are part of that tradition. And um, so Connolly began preparations for a rising against British imperialism that would lead to the, uh, uh, the Easter Rising of 1916. But there were two questions upon which this rising would hinge. The question of whether the working class would, would rise to, to meet this insurrection with their own general strike and their own insurrection, whether they would be ready for a rising. And there was also the question of mustering sufficient military force to put up a serious resistance towards British imperialism. Now, James Connolly was only able to command a force numbering several hundred men under arms in the Irish Citizens Army. So he therefore sought an alliance with the middle class leaders of the far bigger nationalist militia, the Irish Volunteers, which had perhaps 15,000 men under arms. And uh, he succeeded in actually forming a pact with the most revolutionary elements of the Irish Volunteers, particularly the um, Irish uh, Republican Brotherhood. Uh, which had infiltrated the organisation, and came to an agreement for a rising on Easter Sunday, 1916. But the very day that the rising was uh, was due to take place, the leader of the Irish Volunteers, Owen McNeill, uh, sent a countermanding order, uh, ordering the Volunteers not to turn out for mobilisations. So again, just as Connolly had predicted, the, the national struggle was once more betrayed by the the vacillations and the half measures of the middle class leaders. The uh, the rising was delayed by a day and took place on Easter Monday, but the betrayal had done its work. The uh, the turnout of the Irish volunteers was suppressed because of this betrayal and perhaps a little over a thousand turned out. Meanwhile, we see that the, the, disip the disciplined proletarian forces of the Irish citizens army turned out to a man. So the, the, the rising began when the rebels took as their headquarters the general post office uh, building which is on O'Connell Street in Dublin. Uh, the, the Republic was declared and the British were initially taken by surprise by these events uh, but they quickly regrouped. And the British were prepared to use uh, artillery. Uh, they, they flattened large parts of Dublin and set it on fire and caused a, a large number of civilian casualties. They they clamped down brutally on this rising, and yet the, the rising managed to, the, the rebels held out for six days. Um, eventually, uh, they, 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 were, they were crushed. Um, the, um, the, the general post office building was engulfed in flames, and the, the rebels were forced to evacuate and surrender to the British, who took them captive. The great tragedy of the Easter Rising was that the, uh, the workers, um, particularly the Dublin workers, were still exhausted and recovering from their strength from the great Dublin lockout of just a, a couple of years earlier. A, a revolutionary crisis was certainly maturing in Ireland, but it hadn't reached full maturation point yet, and it would be a couple of years before it would fully do so. I should mention that the middle-class nationalists of the Irish Parliamentary Party and the church hierarchy tried to outdo each other in denouncing the rising. But uh, very quickly, they would have to eat their words because the British... Um, the, the, the British army were determined to have their revenge. Um, Fifteen... Uh, rebel leaders were executed. There were also summary executions of, uh, of, of innocent individuals. And uh, James Connolly himself was, was also killed by the British. Connolly was, uh, had been mortally wounded in the ankle and so unable to stand, he was taken out into a courtyard of Kilmainham Jail. Uh, he, was, he was strapped to a chair and he was uh, executed by a British firing squad. Now in two ways, the Easter Rising marks a, uh, a decisive, and, and the subsequent executions, mark a decisive turning point in the Irish Revolution. On the one hand, it catalyzed the anger of the, of the masses in Irish society and uh, 
It also electrified the revolutionary mood in society to see the Republic declared not simply in words but in deeds and to hold out for several days against the British. But it also uh, deprived the Irish working class of its most outstanding representative of James Connolly. And it had um, an effect on the outcome of the Irish Revolution similar to that of the deaths of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht in January 1919 had on the outcome of the German Revolution. Without uh, a Without a revolutionary Marxist cadre organisation, uh, the the second rank and third rank leaders were not up to the tasks that the revolution threw up, basically. And so, without this key individual, the revolution was uh, the working class was left headless, beheaded. Now, a couple of years later, by 1918, the revolutionary process in Ireland had matured, and immediately, the working class placed its stamp on events, showing the social character of the. Irish Revolution. Yeah, in, in April 1918, in response to attempts by the British to introduce conscription to Ireland, uh, you had a political general strike that was solid in the North and the South amongst Protestants and Catholics, um, which was unique in history outside of Russia. A political general strike on this scale was something new. And later in 1918, the, uh, the revolutionary mood in society reflected itself also on the electoral front. Uh, as some of the surviving leaders of the Easter Rising had been amnestied and in 1917 had taken over <clears throat> the Sinn Féin party, a small party to use as an electoral vehicle. And uh, in, in late 1918, they, uh, they stood in the general election that was held and they took all but maybe five or six seats away from the Irish Parliamentary Party, really hammering this party for its, its betrayal, basically. The question that really needs to be asked is where was the Irish Labour Party? Because there was an Irish Labour Party. It had been founded by James Connolly. Well, Sinn Féin had refused to come to an agreement with the Labour Party in the election and instead they raised the slogan, Labour must wait. In other words, first we need a cross-class alliance to complete the national struggle and then Labour, the working class, can raise its demands for socialism, for higher pay, for whatever else. But first we need to concentrate on the national struggle. It's the same conception that had been raised by the Mensheviks of a stagist theory of history uh, and that would later be revived by the Stalinists here um, presented by Sinn Féin in this slogan, Labour must wait. But because they didn't understand James Connolly's advice of the connection between the class struggle and the national struggle, the Labour leaders uh, dutifully abstained. They, 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 abs they stood aside in the election and allowed Sinn Féin to take... Uh, all of the all of the seats in this in this election. In January 1919, these newly elected Sinn Féin MPs ceded from Westminster and founded the the the, uh, the first Doyle, the first Irish Parliament. Basically, they refused to recognise the legitimacy of the British government over Ireland. <clears throat> if Labour had stood and even had a small number of Marxist MPs in this revolutionary leadership, they could have represented an alternative point of reference in the revolutionary events that unfolded. Now, by seceding from Westminster, the, uh, uh, this triggered a revolutionary war for independence. Now, the petty bourgeois leadership of Sinn Féin overwhelmingly focused on the guerrilla struggle against the British, but the working class was still at the forefront of this revolutionary struggle. You had a wave of strikes on the transport system, you had fact occupations and land occupations when the factories were occupied and when the creameries were occupied in the in the in the countryside the workers would raise the red flag and declare them under soviet control which shows what the workers thought this revolution was about and when in uh, uh the the british imprisoned some ira members in april 1919 the workers of limerick 
uh, staged a general strike. They declared the town under Soviet control and even began printing their own currency. It wasn't just in the south that was convulsed by revo a revolutionary wave. In Belfast as well, in January 1919, you had a massive strike of engineering workers. And this led to the formation of a Council of Action, which was a Soviet by any other name, and it effectively had control of the city of Belfast. So clearly the possibility existed of carrying out a socialist revolution in Ireland. But the only way that that could have been successful would have been if the leadership of the revolutionary movement in the south had made a clear class appeal to the workers in the north. If they had raised a socialist program and put forward James Connolly's slogan of the need for a workers' republic, they could have cut across attempts to divide workers uh, on religious lines in the north of Ireland. <clears throat> but this was beyond the horizon of the majority of the petty bourgeois leaders of Sinn Féin. Now, I should take a moment to actually talk about and characterise republicanism, this movement for this, this democratic revolutionary movement with a long tradition in Ireland. Republicanism is a, is a, is a, is a movement uh, which continues to this day with a long revolutionary tradition going back to the 18th century. It is a revolutionary democratic national liberation tradition. But like any uh, national democratic movement, it has class contradictions re reflecting the, 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 the contradictions between the classes in Ireland itself. Republicanism has always and continues to have a left and a right wing and the IRA and Sinn Féin in the, uh, the War of Independence had a left and a right wing as well. <clears throat> in fact, the IRA was formed from a merger of the proletarian Irish Citizens Army and the petty bourgeois Irish Volunteers, so it had, it had a class contradiction in its DNA. And among the leaders of the War of Independence and of Sinn Féin and at the IRA, you had a clear left wing represented by people like Countess Markievicz, Liam, Mello, uh, Liam uh, Mellows and Padre O'Donnell. Uh, but you also had a, a bourgeois right wing represented by people like Arthur Griffith and Owen McNeill. And they consciously attempted to moderate the revolution, to hold it back and to find a compromise with British imperialism. And with British imperialism unable to hold on to the whole of Ireland, they were more than happy to reach out to the right wing within republicanism and come to an agreement that was in their interests. This was the Anglo-Irish Treaty of a century ago which partitioned Ireland, uh, a partitioning which took place very much in the interests of British imperialism. <clears throat> With the British retaining control of the north of Ireland, they were in control of what represented then 80% of the industrial output of Ireland. The northeast represented about 80% of that indus industrial production at that time. Um, they, they retained a, an a strategically important military presence on, presence on the island. But more important than that, the British ruling class had been faced with socialist revolution in Ireland and also at the same time in Britain, revolutionary developments in 1919-1920. And the ruling class therefore saw the creation of a reactionary Protestant statelet based upon permanent sectarian religious division as a permanent bulwark against Bolshevism. <clears throat> so we can see how illusory was the idea that some physical force Republicans had at that time that they'd scored a partial victory. They thought that by booting Britain out of three quarters of Ireland, it was a uh, three quarters of the way to booting Britain out of all of Ireland. What they lacked was an understanding that by partitioning Ireland, you would unleash a wave of reaction that would push away the prospect of a united re republic further than ever. Of course, this was from the point of view of the Irish nationalist bourgeois, this was fine. It allowed them freedom to exploit the workers in the north and they didn't care what happened in the uh, sorry in the south and they didn't care what happened in the north <clears throat> and the uh, the agreement as you can imagine led to bitter recriminations and quickly a split developed in the ira uh, descending into civil war between the pro and anti-treaty forces i don't have time to flesh out what happened in that civil war but with the backing of the british the pro-treaty side won <clears throat> 
And it was actually out of uh, a section of the, uh, sorry, out of the pro and a section of the more right-wing anti-treaty forces that the two main bourgeois parties that have dominated Ireland for a century were formed. That is Fianna Gael and Fianna Foyle. And there is no, sorry, and there's no serious difference between them today. <clears throat> now, the fact that since last year, the election in February, they have been forced to uh, rule together through a historically unprecedented coalition shows what a crisis the political situation is in Ireland today. Now, the Free State, as it was called in the south of Ireland, was economically backward and it was dominated by British imperialism and also the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church used its dominant position not only to enrich itself, but to carry out a reign of terror, particularly against the most vulnerable, above all, women and children. In the notorious mother and baby homes, uh, women were subjected to, the, and children were subjected to the most horrific abuses and slave labor that continued right down to the 1990s. So this isn't simply a historical question. And in fact, the South remained in a condition of backwardness, basically, right down until the 1990s. And you can imagine for Protestant workers in the North, um, the idea of a united island, if that meant unification with this backward sectarian state in the south, was a repulsive concept to, 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 to many hundreds of thousands of workers. <clears throat> so reaction in the south strengthened reaction in the north and vice versa. In fact, it's only been, as I say, since the 90s that you have seen a bit of a change in the south with the influx of a large amount of American tech capital. And this, this influx has led to the creation of a powerful, youthful and educated working class in the south of Ireland today. And this fact is probably the most important factor for the future of the Irish Revolution. I mean, the working class in the south has barely begun to move, but even just by lifting its little finger, it has already struck a death blow against the Catholic Church and the two-party system. In two referenda in the past few years, in the gay marriage referendum and the repeal of the Eighth Amendment over the question of abortion, the Catholic Church has found itself resoundingly defeated by large majorities. So each pillar of the of the uh, Irish establishment in the South formed in a counter-revolution one century ago is now in crisis. And the same is true in the North. In the North, uh, the, the signing of the treaty a century ago led to uh, hell for Catholics in the North of Ireland. Uh, they were subjected to pogroms, particularly in the, in the city of Belfast. Uh, thousands of Catholics were forced from the factories, as well as what were called rotten prods, which were basically Protestants who were socialists or revolutionaries. They were also kicked out of the factories in these pogroms which swept the north. <clears throat> 9,000 Catholics were driven from their jobs, 23,000 were rendered homeless, and in two years from June 1920 to June 1922, 428 Catholics were killed and 1,766 were wounded. So there were more casualties in these organised religious riots in the north than there were deaths in the civil war in the south. Meanwhile, you remember that violent sectarian militia, the Ulster Volunteers, which I likened to the Black Hundreds, was absorbed into the state as uh, an auxiliary of the police called the B Specials. And they and the Royal Ulster Constabulary formed a permanent stick over the heads of the Catholics, a permanent violent threat. Meanwhile, you had um, a, a, uh, all sorts of anti-democratic means were used to maintain a permanent majority for the unionist politicians, um, such as fixing electoral boundaries. Uh, those who uh, owned no property didn't get a vote. And if you had a business, you got extra votes. <laughs> And this was supplemented by discrimination in housing, in jobs. And this is how Northern Ireland was founded one, set, one century ago and which is being celebrated today. But history didn't end in 1922. Um, 
and it didn't stand still for the British either. They were happy with partition in the 1920s, but uh, their interests changed. Uh, the process of senile decay of British capitalism has led to deindustrialization across Britain, and you've seen the same process of deindustrialization in the north of Ireland right down to the present. 80% of the industrial output of Ireland is now around 10% or less. It ceased to be of any economic importance for British imperialism. <clears throat> Um, and uh, far from being a bulwark against Bolshevism, the injustices that existed in the north of Ireland after partition threatened to become more flammable material for a new revolutionary uprising. So since the post-war period, uh, you know, for 70 or 80 years, the British imperialists have had no real interest in holding on to the north of Ireland, and yet they still hold on to it because they've become prisoners of their past policies. Now, the... Um, <clears throat> what I mean by that is they have become prisoners to uh, Protestant sectarianism and loyalism, which they have created, which have become a monster beyond their control. And in 1968-1969, they, uh, they saw the revolutionary events that they had feared in the outburst of the civil rights movement, again, inspired by events on a world scale. Now, unfortunately, it's far beyond the scope of this lead-off to do justice to the civil rights movement and the great revolutionary events of that year and what happened next and why... It descended into a spiral of reactionary violence in the Troubles in the decades following. But I do want to try to touch on some of those events, uh, albeit telegraphically. <laughs> um, the, the, the demands that the civil rights movement raised were basic democratic uh, demands for an end to election rigging, an end to repressive laws, and an end to discrimination in jobs and housing. But it was, it was in response to these democratic demands that uh, the sectarian preacher, the fundamentalist uh, Christian Ian Paisley, began whipping up... Uh, sectarianism amongst uh, the Protestant population. And his, his argument of him and his supporters was remarkably uh, simple. It was, it's the same argument that has been used for generations by demagogues who want to divide the working class. His argument was basically to the Protestant workers, if we end discrimination in jobs and housing and give more jobs and more houses to the Catholics, that means less jobs and less houses for you, the Protestant worker. <clears throat> Now, I think there's an important lesson here in the civil rights movement in Ireland for the struggle against all forms of discrimination and why to fight discrimination, we have to connect it to the socialist transformation of society. <clears throat> there was one way to completely neutralize the propaganda of Ian Paisley, and that was to answer his propaganda by saying, we're fighting for jobs for all and housing for all on the basis of a socialist program. It's, it's capitalism which creates the, uh, the artificial scarcity, which creates the struggle for survival and therefore on a socialist program we could give everyone decent jobs and decent housing because it was it was true then and it is true now that protestant workers also suffer from a lack of job opportunities and a lack of decent housing in the in the north of ireland but if the uh, the, the problem was that the civil rights leaders and particularly the, the left wing influenced by stalinism failed to raise a socialist program and connect it with the, the demands for civil rights they they separated again they created a false divide between democratic demands for equality and the fight for socialism. The two are inseparable. And therefore, everywhere the protests went, they were, they were threatened by these reactionary gangs that were whipped up by Ian Paisley. And this reached dangerous proportions. They threatened to be a new pogrom uh, that would have... Uh, um, uh, that would have rivaled the pogrom of the 1920s in its ferocity. This led to a revolutionary situation in which workers, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of workers in Catholic neighborhoods rose up in self-defense. And the question was posed point blank. 
of defending themselves, of, of self-defense, and if necessary, armed self-defense. And we've seen in 1913 that the question of self-defense was posed in Dublin, and under Marxist leadership, the trade unions organized workers' militias to defend the working class against armed scabs. But the reformist trade unionists in the 1960s and the early 1970s refused to take this approach, and therefore they left a vacuum open waiting to be filled uh, for, for defense of the Catholic communities. And it was the provisional IRA that filled that vacuum. Many honest socialist uh, working class Catholic youth joined the provisional IRA, but the leadership represented actually a right-wing faction within republicanism at that time. Uh, their conception of the unification of Ireland was simply to militarily defeat the British and force the unification of North and South, basically forcing one million Protestants into a united Ireland with this backward church-dominated state in the South against their will. It was impossible. And with the brutal attempts by the British to crush the IRA, which only served to uh, flood more recruits into the provisional IRA, uh, what you saw was then a descent into 25 years of reactionary violence that uh, increased the division between Protestant and Catholic work. So to, I, I, <laughs> I've, I've been very telegraphic here, but I do want to now just draw out a few concluding points about the situation in Ireland today. There have been decisive changes in Ireland in the past few decades. <clears throat> in the South, the church, this bastion of counter-revolution has been shattered. Uh, the two-party system is decayed and crumbling and anger is building in the working class. Yep. Uh, these, these are preparing conditions for a new revolution in Ireland and Marxists in Ireland need to be ready to meet these events. Comrades in the international Marxist tendency in Ireland are, are learning from past events and are trying to build a Marxist organisation to have an influence on the events which will unfold. In the North as well, there have been decisive changes in the past few decades. Um, the, 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 the violence of the Troubles was more or less brought to an end 25 years ago with the Good Friday Agreement, but it didn't fundamentally solve any of the underlying c contradictions in Ireland. Brexit has made that pretty clear. <laughs> and uh, indeed, Brexit and the crisis of British capitalism um, and the conflict between Britain and the European Union is a further source of destabilisation in, in Irish politics. But with the changes that are taking place and this instability, there are good reasons to believe that what will happen in the North won't be a simple repetition of the past. The working class in both communities are sick of the reactionary violence that marked past decades and are determined not to return to that. Um, unionism, uh, the political ideology of the, the Protestant bourgeois in the North, is, uh, is in a deep crisis and has actually lost its majority for the first time in history in recent years. The decline of capitalism and deindustrialization has meant that those skilled jobs that in the, in the past formed the basis for creating that illusion of a unity of interest between Protestant bosses and workers, those jobs have gone. In their place um, have come low-paid service sector and public sector jobs and uh, unemployment. And groups like the Orange Order have become aging organizations that have declined. The prospects for socialist revolution uh, are better than ever, objectively speaking. But there is another side to the question. Um, capitalism in crisis also means a growth in unemployment, a growth in misery, and a growing ferocity in the struggle for survival. And we see everywhere from Ireland to Britain to Canada to the United States that um, <clears throat> demagogues will use this struggle for existence to incite one section of workers against each other. Uh, you know, native-born workers are incited against migrants, uh, white workers are incited against black workers, and Protestant workers are incited against Catholic workers and vice versa. So the decline of uh, unionism and the crisis of unionism is really a twofold process of polarization within the Protestant community. Um, 
a layer of particularly of youth uh, have become sick of sectarian politics. But at the same time, you have uh, the more hardcore and sectarian uh, unionist groups um, vying for support from the more backward layers of the working class. Yeah. In fact, in all periods of, of crisis of the capitalist system, revolution and counter-revolution grow in strength simultaneously and in step with each other. So the, the, the conditions for revolution objectively have never been better, but there are also um, important pitfalls and minefields um, and a legacy of, of course, sectarianism and an unresolved national question which complicate the, the, the problems of the Irish Revolution. And as we've seen from the rich revolutionary history that Ireland has, the question of leadership has always been and remains a key question in the Irish Revolution. Um, yeah, with a, on the basis of a clear understanding of the link between the national and the class, uh, the national struggle and the class struggle, it is possible. It is possible to cut across the divisions that the bourgeois so, and to unite the working class for a revolutionary struggle, as we've seen in the past. But an unclear and a theoretically confused leadership can also uh, lead a revolutionary movement to disaster. Um, and um, once an opportunity is let slip. It, uh, it, is, it is very difficult to, uh, it can open the doors for counter-revolutionary tendencies and developments and processes. So I think we, that in, in summary, uh, we can say that the objective conditions are good and the conditions for building that leadership are also good. <clears throat> and so our task today is to, is to build the revolutionary leadership for the working class in the tradition of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky and James Connolly. And the, the, the slogan in, in Ireland must be, um, we must return to the ideas of Connolly. We must return to the ideas of a workers' republic and a world socialist revolution. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.